<laughs> I'm guessing that you heard that. <laughs> so um, I'm going to do a little bit of a, a recap um, because I think that that's helpful when you start a new book to make sure that everyone's kind of on the same page, really. So we're looking at rebuilding walls, restoring lives, and we are talking about actual rebuilding and restoring and metaphorical rebuilding and restoring. Some of us need that as well. It is time, I hope, I say this with a degree of confidence, it is time for us to move forward in our building work, literally. Oh, good, good. That, that wasn't, that didn't happen in the first service. Right. Um, it is time for us to move forward with some literal restoration in terms of our own lives. I really feel that it's time for some of us to put some stuff down and to move on, to move forward, to leave that, to go on, to find that restoration and uh, to see God doing that and for that to be our story and our testimony. It is time for us to be increasingly providing that place of restoration and hope for the community in God, not just in our church, but in the church, in our town, to find that place and this book encompasses so much of those things. It talks about leadership and spirituality and practical realities and faith and courage and identity and opposition and prayer and a bunch of other things as well. It covers so much in its brief 13 chapters. It is a book for its time and it is a book for our time. So I just want to give us a little bit of context and I've nicked this from Phil from last week. So hopefully I'll understand it. Um, David was the king. After David, Solomon was the king. After Solomon, things got a bit of a mess. The kingdom was split into two. In the north was Israel under Jeroboam. Very soon that was invaded by Assyria and annihilated. In the south was the kingdom of Judah under Rehoboam. And after about 300 years, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar 587 BC, he invaded, the Babylonians invaded, and the people were taken uh, into exile in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon didn't last for too long before Cyrus became emperor from Persia. He features in sending some of the people back to rebuild Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. Good name for baby, that, wouldn't it? Zerubbabel. Then after that, we have, by the way, that is the um, Persian cylinder mentioned in Ezra chapter 1. Then after Cyrus, we have Darius. And the temple is completed. Uh, the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra, who's key for the rebuilding of the temple, are feature in that time. Then we have Xerxes in 486 BC, and the story of Esther occurs in the time of King Xerxes. And after Xerxes, we have Artaxerxes, and we're talking about the walls of Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah. It appears that some have returned to start a bit of rebuilding work in Jerusalem earlier in Artaxerxes' reign, but they have showed a degree of rebellion, and Artaxerxes has said, you stop right now. So that's the background. Are you all with me? Excellent. So into that, we have Nehemiah. Nehemiah introduces himself. He is cupbearer to the king. He should really be paid danger money for this job. Because if it goes well, all is well. But if it doesn't go well, curtains, end a job. All right? So this is a key role in the life of the king and the kingdom. He lives in Susa in Persia. 
He's very detailed. 445 BC, the month of Kislev, that's November, December in our calendar. This is Nehemiah, the man about whom we are reading. And as he is there in Susa, he receives some news, some devastating news. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This is the harsh reality for God's people at this time. And I know that Phil gave you a bunch of statistics last week looking at the harsh reality for the people of God in our time. If you weren't here and it was a graph, it would look something like this. Right? You don't need to be great at graphs to understand that that's not good news. There are less believers. There are less people in church in the UK and Western Europe. Not, that's not the truth everywhere else. The church is mainly in decline, not absolutely, but mainly. More and more young people who grow up in church, I think the stats are something like four out of ten young people who grow up in church continue in church. It's a really worrying statistic, isn't it? This is the harsh reality for us, that to be the church here in the UK at this time is to be on the margin, to not have much power and influence even when we have some. This is the reality we are dealing with. The messenger who came to speak to Nehemiah was called Hanani. His name means God is hidden. And that was their experience in Jerusalem, that God was hidden. Where was he? What was he doing? But they came to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's name means God is comforter. And names are always significant in Scripture. Nehemiah hears the news and he weeps and he mourns. I wonder, have you ever faced a completely impossible situation? Smile at me if you have. (laughs) Or one that seemed that way. Let me tell you about a couple of things. About 25-ish years ago, I went to Israel with my mum and a couple of her friends. And um, we drove to the north of Israel up onto Mount Hermon, which is on the borders with Lebanon. Uh, We drove there, and we all got out the car, and we all took our bags out of the car. I had been driving the car, and we all went, right, okay, are we all ready then? Let's climb up to the top and see if there's any snow. At which point I went, where are the keys to the car? And I had locked the keys in the boot of the car on the top of Mount Hermon. That felt quite an impossible situation. I haven't been able to listen to the news this week either without recounting how Mike and I, when we were traveling through Central America, found ourselves at the Mexico-Belize border in absolutely torrential pouring rain, waiting for our documents to be checked. I was throwing up everywhere because I had a migraine. It was just a horrendous experience. And somewhere behind us in the queue, someone said in Spanish, the biggest hurricane, the fifth biggest hurricane on record is about to hit Belize. Now, that's not really overly encouraging where you're about to enter the country. And so we got on the bus and uh, we stopped overnight because I wasn't very well. Then we went to Belize City to the airport with the intention of leaving Belize because obviously that's what you would do if a hurricane was coming. As we got to the airport, the airport was utterly full of people And everyone who was on a package tour or a cruise liner, they had priority. They were getting out. And there was no way that two bedraggled uh, travelers were getting anywhere. 
There were no buses out of Belize. The last time a hurricane hit Belize in the early 70s, it completely decimated the country, just as the pictures that you have seen on the news this week. So we thought that there wasn't really much we could do. So it felt like much of an impossible situation, didn't it? Nehemiah found himself in that place. The circumstances that he was passionately concerned about were 800 miles away. Secondly, he worked for the king of Persia. He might not have been too thrilled if he'd said, excuse me, sir, may I have some annual leave to go on an archaeological dig for a few months? The important thing that Nehemiah knew and that we need to know is that when you face yourself in an impossible, find yourself in an impossible situation, when you don't know what to do, the best thing that you can do is to pray. Is to pray. We wandered around the airport. We wandered into the only hotel. Don't get too excited about that. But there was. And, um, and it just happened to be the only one in Belize that was built with hurricane standards in mind. And it, and it just happened to be run by two Americans who just happened to be missionaries from Texas to Belize, who just happened to be able to offer us a room that we didn't have to pay lots of money for, who were happy for our help, nail, Mike's help, nailing up those wooden boards like you've seen and taking down all the aerials off the roof, who just happened to suggest that maybe we could have a prayer meeting for everyone from every nation who was in the hotel in the room that night to pray that the hurricane might not come. And we prayed together. It was one of the most profoundly impacting experiences of my life to be in that meeting. And we prayed for this hurricane, which was precisely as the ones you've seen on the news today. Hurricanes only lose power when they come over land, so it has to go somewhere. It stopped on its tracks, and it moved over the north of Honduras, which is broadly unpopulated. And over that period of time, it lost about 100 miles per hour of speed. And when it hit Central America, it still caused massive flooding and devastation. But nothing like what it would have happened if that hurricane came over. You know, when you don't know what to do, it's really good to pray, isn't it? When you find yourself in an impossible situation, it's really good to pray. And that's what Nehemiah did. He prayed. And Phil covered this last week. He prayed for three to four months he prayed day and night. He was persistent and consistent and real and raw in his prayer. And after all that time of extended fasting and praying and waiting, and trust me, the third one of those is harder than the other two, the waiting, he realizes that now is the time. Now is the time when he seizes the moment. Maybe the king was at his other winter residence in Babylon for some of this time. Maybe he wasn't in a great mood. Maybe stuff was kicking off in the empire and he thought this is not a good time to have this conversation. Maybe he was waiting for an auspicious time, like a birthday party, or um, when the king happened to be in a generous mood. Maybe that's why it mentions that the queen was there, because this was a personal rather than political conversation. And apparently the women in Persia were very significant and of great influence. But anyway, Nehemiah decided that now was the time to seize the moment. So he received the wine for the king as he'd done many times before. He brought the wine into the king as he had done many times before. But this is the time to take the story forward. 
And he chooses his expression. I believe he chooses his expression. This has been months of him feeling the same way. And he's covered that up. He chooses not to hide his distress. In the Persian works of art in Persepolis, it says that those who came into the king's presence did so with deference. They placed their right hand with their palm facing their mouth so as not to defile the king with their breath. Now, I was talking to Richard and Elaine Clare this morning, and they met the Raj in India, and his secretary, who'd worked for him for generations, also did that. Isn't that interesting? All these generations later. So that was what was expected, was for Nehemiah to cover his face and to be happy and confident in the presence of the king. But he was sad. They didn't want them to be sad because then what have I now need to worry because you're looking sad. Why are you sad? Have you got some kind of plot going on? Is there something for me to be concerned about? The servant was expected to look happy in the presence of the king. But I love this little bit because it expresses to me something of the relationship and the character of Artaxerxes. Because he says to him, you look sad, but I know you're not ill. So this must only be sadness of heart. I really love that. Just this little window into something about this powerful king and the relationship with his cupbearer. He kind of knew that something deeper was going on in Nehemiah's heart. Even then, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. He knows that this is a key moment. This is the all-powerful king. He might say, you're not working for me anymore. I don't trust you. He might say, off with your head, because that's what those kind of kings did. Nehemiah knew this was risky. He was very much afraid, but he gives an emotional an honest reply. What he says is this. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruin? Personal, isn't it? He knows this is the moment to speak up. Born out of emotional commitment and a prayerful waiting on God. Did you know he sends up yet another arrow prayer? Then I pray to the God of heaven in the middle of this conversation. I guess you've done that sometimes. This is Nehemiah who knows that he not only stands in the presence of this king, but actually, more importantly, in the presence of the king of kings. And I wonder how often we are intimidated and frightened and anxious because the person stood in front of us is powerful in their world, in our world. And we forget that we also stand in the presence of the sovereign, powerful king of the universe. And actually, compared to him, no one is that powerful. I think Nehemiah realized that. He speaks courageously to the king. He knows it's a sensitive issue. Rebuilding the capital city of a territory 800 miles away in the same empire doesn't always go down well with these kind of rulers. Artaxerxes has already stopped people rebuilding the walls. But he talks about, I want to rebuild the place where my fathers are buried. So surely, surely you can understand that, king. Uh, it's an emotional thing. It's a home thing. It's a, this is reality. It's not a political statement. It's a, I want my place to feel like home again. 
is not specific about the city. Very rapidly, the king, or in some texts it says the king and queen, actually, say, how long? How long are you going to be? Well, that's really positive, isn't it? How long are you going to be means, "Mm, I'm thinking about this. And he sets realistic requirements. It's not going to just nip there and back. This is going to take a while to rebuild the walls. And then he gives a very thoughtful presentation of what he needs. And I don't know about you, but I have um, conversations with God sometimes where he talks more than I do. And I wonder how much of the time when Nehemiah had been praying, it gone like this. God, I don't really know what to do. I'm really worried about the situation. It's overwhelming to me. God says, well, how about if you were to talk to the king about, whoa, don't suggest that's ridiculous. Well, how about if you just kind of showed by your expression that, you know, you weren't really happy and see what, see what happened. Okay. All right, God. You know, or maybe, maybe we could try that. Well, Nehemiah, that's not going to be good enough, is it? And how are you going to get to Jerusalem? Well, I'll just walk. It's not very safe, is it? It's going to take you a really long time. Well, how about, Nehemiah, if you ask the king if he would give you some letters of safety for the governors of the places you're going to walk through? What? Are you sure? You can't do that. What if the king says no? Nehemiah, why don't you just try? Okay. Well, and what are you going to build with when you get there? Where are you going to find wood for the gates? You're not going to have anywhere to live. What are you going to put on the walls apart from the rubble? Why don't you ask for a letter for the king's forest so that you can get the wood, so that you can rebuild more effectively when you get... God, you're really pushing it now. Isn't that an awful lot to ask? You know, Nehemiah didn't think all these things, I don't think, in the immediate instant that he was stood in front of the king. I think he thought really carefully and prayerfully in the presence of God about what he should ask for. He gets letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates. He gets a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, which was probably Solomon's garden six miles south of Jerusalem. And then he is able to set out confidently to set out confidently into this purpose of God. He goes to the governors with the letters, the le- then he walks straight through. He is sent with cavalry and people escorting him all the way back to Judah. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? When he arrives, he arrives with protection and with authority. He arrives in style. This is not Nehemiah just turning up. He's turning up as a servant of King Artaxerxes to make a difference in Jerusalem. And the key verse is this, and because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. That is such an important verse, because the gracious hand of God was upon me. In chapter 1 and verse 11, he prays this, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And because the gracious hand of God was upon me. It's the answer to the prayer, isn't it? He prays for favor, and God gives him favor in the presence of the king, more than he perhaps could ever have anticipated. Do you think we need to be a bit braver in our prayers sometimes? 
you think we need to be a little bit more confident that God is bigger than the people and the circumstances that we face? Do you think perhaps God can turn things around that we thought were impossible? If Nehemiah can stand in the presence of the emperor, who rules the kingdoms of the known world at that point, and God can do something and grant him success, he surely can do that for us, can't he? Two and a half of you are good. He's where he wants to be, so now is the time for strategic and wise decision making. We find that he turns up there and he waits for three days. That's to recover from the journey. He couldn't fly there. He had to go on a horse, probably. It took a while, 800 miles, quite a long way. He takes three days to recover. And then he looks around on his own, or broadly on his own. He does it privately, just a few people, one horse. He goes at night, moonlight, I guess. Didn't have a mobile phone. Very few people. God has put something massive in his heart. God has put in his heart a vision for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. This is not a minor project. God has put it in his heart. And he takes a moment to let that settle down in the presence of reality. To walk around the walls of Jerusalem at night with just a couple of people that he trusts. And not to say anything immediately. You know, there is a time for holding things, isn't there? There's a time that God puts a dream in our hearts or a vision in our minds or a burden on our lives. And it's not quite the right time to tell everybody yet. We just need to weigh it up, to have another look, to hold it in the presence of God and a couple of trusted people. Because if it's of God, it will stand. And then he takes time to investigate thoroughly what's going on. He walks around the walls. He does a tour of the walls of Jerusalem. He starts at the valley gate, goes towards the jackal well and the dung gate. The dung gate is the one that leads out onto the Hinnon Valley where the rubbish tip was. I'll leave you to make up the rest for yourself. He examines the walls of Jerusalem and its gates. He moves on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, the pool of Siloam, that we hear about Jesus visiting in the gospel. Eventually, there's not not enough room even for the horse to get through because it's so rubbly and destroyed. So he goes up the valley and he has another look. Chances are that the northern part of Jerusalem was probably completely devastated because it was more often attacked. He is a detailed person. He is not so spiritual that he doesn't look at the detail he's not so detailed that he doesn't pray i think that's just the best combination isn't it all the time praying and fasting and listening to god trusting in god's grace and his favor and all this time investigating really really thoroughly the detail of the what's the issue and what you're going to do about it and we'll see even more of that next week and after all that he communicates after all that Verse 17, this is just so important, smallest word in the sentence. You see the trouble we are in. You see the trouble we are in. Nehemiah has probably never been there. He has come from the king's palace with quite a decent life. 
It would have been so easy for him to say, you see the trouble you were in. I think at that point, the project would have ended. You see the trouble we are in. We. You know, my friends, that is just so, so important for us at this stage. We. It is we. It's not me. It's not the leadership team. It's not the deacons. It's not a certain bunch of enthusiasts. It's we. It always has to be we, all of us. And at the point where we stop saying we and say you, we've lost something. It has to be we. We are in this situation. We are in Skipton Baptist Church. We are in whatever the plans of God are for us. And somewhere along there is that we are in the town. And there's something really beautiful that's occurring with the other churches in town. Just gradually, gradually. But again, it's we. We are the church for this town. Not we're doing well, they're doing well, they're a bit, doing a bit rubbish. Not that. We. At the point where somebody is struggling and suffering, then we are in a mess. Not they are in a mess. I think we're only beginning to grasp that, aren't we? We. <laughs> we. The trouble we are in. This is us. Together. It's a brilliant, brilliant thing that it's us together. Look around you for a second. That means you have to move your head, by the way, generally. Unless you have particularly clever eyes that can just work on their own. <laughs> you know, we have amazing people in this church. That's you, by the way. With amazing gifts and characters and experiences of God and testimonies of his grace. Some of us are a bit broken and rubbish at times and some of us are doing better at times. But hey, this is we. We together, isn't it? And Nehemiah got that. He identified with them. This is us together, and we really need that right now. And then he is completely realistic. You see the trouble we are in. I mean, that's not a great beginning to a sentence, is it, really? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. You know, they've been like this for 140 years. I mean, they clearly haven't all been there for 140 years, but people get used to stuff don't they? We get used to stuff. I mean, how many of you have got a carpet that you hate in your room, in your house somewhere that you've been meaning to change since the day you moved in? Or some bit of damp-ridden wallpaper that you, you, you're meaning to do someday and it's been there for 15 years now. You know, we get used to stuff. And sometimes it needs someone else to come in and go, not looking great, this. We need to do something. We have to be realistic. You know, we have to be realistic about the house it is going to cost us quite a lot of money because stuff does. It is going to take longer than we thought because stuff does. It's a bit of a mess at the moment. There's a whole lot of a mess at the moment. But it's a good mess because it's actually a better mess than the original mess a year ago. Trust me, it is. It will mean some sacrifice to us. It might be money, it might be time, it might be choices. It's going to mean we need to all get our hands dirty. I don't mean we all need to rush straight in there and do things. But at some point, we're involved, aren't we? And this is the realist realism. The other realism is that everybody I talk to in our town, and I want to tell you a bit of a story, but I'm not going to. Everyone I talk to in our town says, when are you going to finish that? We can't wait. And I'm like, yeah, ditto. That's also the reality. We have to have a bit of realism. We can't wave a magic wand, however brilliant Martin is, and make it all go away. It's not going to happen. It's 
going to take a bit of grit, and I hope it will be grit over this next 12 months that will be massively payback by the time we're having this conversation next September. Is that realistic? Okay, sort of. You know, he then was a bit optimistic. He said, come on, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Come on. I bet there were plenty of people going, yeah. I don't want to. I'm fine with living in my rubble shack. I don't want to bother. Because we kind of, we get used to stuff, don't we? Like, come on. And the other thing was he said, come on, because we don't want to be in disgrace. This is the glory of the city of God. This is a city of Zion. This is the temple where people come from all nations to worship the king of kings. This is God's city. We don't want to be in disgrace, a disgrace to the nations anymore, do we? You know, why I want us to build that and why I want us to do stuff here and why I want to see changed lives and relationships restored and a place where people find a home and community and food and clothing and Christ and the good news that transforms their lives is because I want this to be the glory of God. Not for us to be special or get credits or whatever, for the glory of God. If every church in Skipton was packed full with people who'd met Jesus and were transformed by him, wouldn't that be the best thing ever? If people were queuing out the doors of our church and Champions Church and St. Andrews and St. Stephen's and Holy Trinity because the glory of God was in this place, wouldn't that be brilliant? Come on, we can do this, can't we? Nehemiah says, by the way, guys, let me tell you the story of the gracious hand of God on my life. We have those testimonies that we've heard over these last months that have been so brilliant. We need to tell our stories more that God's hand is on us. Our circumstances are sometimes really tough, but God's hand is on us. We can trust him. But you know what? Whenever you go forwards, <laughs> there's always opposition, isn't there? We've got a whole chapter of opposition coming up in a couple of weeks. But, you know, there's signs of significant opposition. In verse 10, Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this. They were very much disturbed. Someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And then verse 19 Sambalat the Horonites by the Ammonite, Fishel and Geshem the Arad heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed. What's this he doing? Sambalat was the governor of Samaria. Tobiah, though he had God in his name, was not very godly. Was the ruler of Ammon, Amman, Jordan. Geshem was an Arab because it says so, probably on Judah's southern flanks. All these characters feature in extra biblical literature. Uh, we can follow them through, that they actually really did exist and do the jobs that Nehemiah says that they did. But they weren't happy about the fact that Nehemiah was coming back. They weren't happy about this project to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you know, through this chapter, we don't see it because our translation doesn't show it to us. But there is this ongoing contrast between the words for good, tov, and the word for evil, ra. So it pervades the chapter. So when it says that Nehemiah was sad, it uses the root word evil. 
When it talks about uh, trouble, it uses the word evil. When it talks about something pleasing him, it says good. And it talks about the good hand of God. Verse 10, it was evil to them. The word welfare is the word good. So what was evil to them was the good of the Israelites. It is a conflict between everything that serves the returning is exiles being good and all that is against it being evil. Through the whole chapter, we don't see that. There is this really clear setup. Everything that's for God and his people is good. Everything that is against them is evil. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against Sambalat. It's not against Tamiah, Tobiah. It's not against Geshem. Those characters exist in different shapes and forms throughout the whole of history. It is against the principalities and powers of this dark world. That is still our reality. So when we want to walk forward into the things of God, is it going to be easy? No, never. No, never. Occasionally, the hand of God is there. It's whoo, open doors. There is always opposition. There will always be stuff coming against us. But it's not Tobiah. It's not Sambalat. It's not Geshem. It's the principalities and powers of this dark age who do not want the church of God to succeed. And we have to pray and we have to move forward. And Nehemiah finishes this chapter. Again, the similar words that feature. I answered them by saying, I love this, the God of heaven will give us success. That's the foundation, isn't it? The God of heaven will give us success. The building on the foundation is this. We, his servants, will start building. Yeah, God will give us success, but we're going to rebuild. It's, it's the two things together. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Bang. <laughs> Away with you. Oh, they'll come back. Away with you. The God of heaven will give us success. The machinations of people who are against the things of the kingdom of God will not ultimately prosper. Cannot frustrate God's good intentions. God's purposes will be fulfilled for his glory. That's the story of the whole of history and our little bits in our little place in the midst of it. The God of heaven will give us success. And we, his servants, will start rebuilding. Whatever that looks like in our little sphere, and it will be different for different people, we will cooperate with God's plans and purposes for us in this place. Restoring lives, rebuilding walls, literal or metaphorical, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace in our community and where he puts us. We, his servants, will start rebuilding.